Good morning everyone. I'm going to be reading this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1 starting at verse 13 and going through to chapter 2 verse 3. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply, from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The best thing that's happened in my life was becoming a Christian. But I'm, I'm really aware that lots of the people around me, they didn't see it that way. I mean, Christians are normally not the envy of their friends and family who aren't believers. So when I became a Christian, I was an undergraduate student at Adelaide University. And my uni mates, say, they didn't say things like, you are so lucky, Paul. I mean, how come you got to become a Christian and we missed out? It is just so unfair. Now, it, it wasn't like that. I didn't get the impression that any of them wanted to swap places. Uh, they had a respect for my choices and convictions, but they weren't lining up to become followers of Jesus. Now, last week, we saw that being a Christian is a, a wonderful privilege. But it's hard to hang on to the truth that being a Christian is special when the people around you don't see it that way. Now, why is it like that? Why isn't following Jesus more popular? I mean, maybe you're watching today, you're not a follower of Jesus. Why not? I mean, what do you think Christians are on about? I've often found that my friends see Christianity as a system of restrictive religious rules. You know, a life of deprivation now 
so that in due course you get a front row seat near Jesus in heaven. You know, a life of sacrifice and the hope of getting something later on. But nothing could be further from the truth. As we move into this next section of 1 Peter chapter 1, when we go to verse 13, it starts to talk about behaviour. What's expected of those who call themselves Christian? So you might be tempted to think, well, here's the religious rules bit. Uh, What I miss out on if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. But that is a total misread of this part of the Bible and the Christian life. 1 Peter 1 helps us see that the Christian life is not so much a legal duty and maintaining a series of rules, but it's more like belonging to a a wonderful family. Uh, Look at the family language that just riddles this section of the Bible. If you go to verse 3 of chapter 1, it says we've been given new birth. I mean, we haven't joined a political party or a sports club where you pay subscription fees and get certain benefits. We've been brought into a family. And God in this passage, he's not a judge or a policeman. He's our father. That's the way it's described in verse 2. God, the father. It's the same in verse 3 and verse 17, where we're invited to call upon our heavenly father. In verse 8, we're told we love Jesus. He's our brother who died for us. In verse 14, we're described as obedient children. And we're not slaves or servants or employees. And that means we're in a family where we have brothers and sisters. So when we go to verse 22, we're told to love one another deeply from the heart. We're not fellow club members or people who just respect or cooperate with one another. Yeah, we're family. Then in verse 2 of chapter 2, we're described as newborn babies, not subcontractors with a job to do. Family. But, of course, our experience of family is really mixed. Some of us will have great memories of growing up, but others, not so good. Some of us are in families right now that work well, while others of us, we might be experiencing high tension or struggles, disharmony, even the breakdown of relationships. But we all have a sense of what we want family to be, uh, where there's love, care, trust, respect, affection, integrity, where you want the best for each other, where we feel supported, where we're cared for when we grieve. These are the people that we celebrate with. Here from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we start to explore what it means to be part of God's family. Notice in verse 13 of chapter 1, it starts with, Therefore, therefore, given the grace of God and the amazing privilege of being chosen that we've explored in the opening 12 verses, therefore, how will we live as his children? Every family has its, its values and traditions. In the fam- family of Harrington, uh, Sue and I wanted our kids to know that people were much more important than stuff. So if our kids accidentally broke something, even if it was expensive or close to our hearts, this was minor by comparison with damaging a relationship by being rude or unloving or unkind or lying. So in this section of 1 Peter that we're going to look at, there are five key values that are outlined for the family of God. 
Now, for those of you who are technically minded, uh, there are five imperative verbs that operate like hooks to hang these five key ideas on. Let me just point them out before we look at each one in turn. So if you turn to verse 13 of chapter 1, we're told, set your hope on the grace. Set your hope on the grace. The second one comes in verse 15, be holy. The third in verse 17, live in reverent fear. Then when you go to verse 22, we're told to love one another deeply. And then when you get to chapter 2, verse 2, we're encouraged to crave pure spiritual milk. So let's look at each of those together. Firstly, set your hope on future grace. Let's look at verse 13 again. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, we've already received grace, uh, God's generosity. We've been chosen, saved. We have a relationship with God. But there is a future grace, a grace we experience when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus turns up to wind up the history of our world. And that future hope, it's meant to shape our lives now. But that's hard because we live in a culture that's dominated by the here and the now. And the definition of long-term planning for an Australian is whether you have enough money saved in your superannuation to survive on when you retire. I mean, how do you set your hope on future growth, on what's stored up for us in heaven? In verse 13, we're instructed to have our minds alert and fully sober. Uh, Literally, it's to gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, It's picking up in an ancient image, you know, a person with long flowing caftan-type robes. If that person wanted to hustle, they had to gather up the robes and free up their legs in order to run. It's that sort of idea. Uh, For us, it's like rolling up the shirt sleeves of our minds for business or booting up the computer of our brain. Uh, I know someone very recently who completed their professional exams as a doctor. Now, that's involved years of solid undergraduate work, and this last professional qualification meant an intense period of study while juggling a young baby, marriage, work, and other responsibilities. Now, it's the same with believers when we're caught in a live-for-now world. God's children are to study for heaven. What, What do you dream about? Now, what's on your bucket list? What occupies your, your imagination? Yeah, what is it that if it, it happened would make you go, yes, you know, in a way that's in keeping with your personality? Do you think as much about the seismic changes that will occur when Jesus returns? It, it will change what you worry about now. It'll put things in perspective. It'll change, change your investment strategies. It was the reformer, Martin Luther, who said, we need to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. The second hook comes in verse 15. We're instructed to be holy. Look at uh, verse 15 with me. Just as he who called you is holy... 
So be holy in all you do. I remember when one of our kids came home from school and announced at the dinner table that they had learnt how to pray that day. Now, Sue and I were just a little bit surprised. Uh, We thought we'd been teaching and modelling this for some time. So we asked, we said, what did you learn? And at this point, the child became very serious. They folded their hands neatly. They bowed their heads and clenched their eyes tightly shut. And then, in a deeper and more formal voice, they said, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, I suspect that when it comes to holiness, often people conjure up the image of rule-keeping wowsers, you know, people who think that they're better than others because they go to church, they don't use drugs, they don't dance while they play poker machines, you know. But, but what's interesting here is that there are no examples, there are no specifics given of what holiness looks like. And that's because it's not so much rules as relationship. Look again at verse 15. Notice what it says. Just as he who called you is holy, be holy. And then there's that quote from Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. Uh, Kids imitate their parents. They imitate mannerisms and language. I remember one Sunday morning at church, I was wandering around the building. Just before the meeting, I was shaking hands with people when that was still allowed. And someone pointed out to me that one of my kids, who was three years old at the time, was also wandering up and down the aisle, shaking hands and welcoming people to church. Now, I didn't train him for months how to do it. He just saw me and he did it too. Now, we are God's kids. We're to be like him. And notice the contrast here. We all know what it's like to imitate others. We know what peer pressure is like, wanting to fit in with the crowd, to go with the flow, whether it's to have what others have, you know, looks or a house or car or travel, or to fit in with behaviour, you know, to sleep around or be loose with the truth, gossip or, or workaholism. But if we're followers of Jesus, we don't run with the crowd. We imitate the character of our Heavenly Father. Then we come to the third family tray. It's to live in reverent fear. Look at verse 17 with me. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? A father who judges. A father who judges. As a young lawyer, I can clearly recall the first time I appeared before a magistrate. It was a really simple matter, just a guilty plea, but I was so nervous. And I had everything I was going to say written out. All I had to do was say it. The magistrate would pass sentence. But this magistrate, he had worked out that this was my first court appearance. And so he started asking me questions, probing questions. I remember thinking, no, I meant to speak. You're meant to listen, pass sentence, and that's it. It was terrifying. Now, God, we're told, is a judge. That has a certain intimidation factor about it. 
But notice here, he is a father judge. Now, of course, if you don't have any relationship with God, you don't know him as father, then it's right just to be filled with terror. But if you know God as father, then it's a person you treat with awe and wonder that's coupled with affection. That's why the security of this relationship is spelt out in more detail here. Notice what it says in verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. There are two ideas that are being outlined here. The idea of being redeemed or ransomed from an empty way of life. You see, if you have no hope, no relationship with God, then your dreams must be shaped by this world, what you can see, taste, touch and feel. And it's an empty way of life in the sense that it's not going anywhere and it isn't ultimately substantial. And then there's the second idea that comes out about being ransomed for a high price. Now, gold has always been a stable, reliable economic unit. And during times of recession, the price of gold always goes up. In Australia, over the last 12 months, the price of gold has risen from $1,300 an ounce to $1,800 an ounce. And I looked up on Google and it said, gold lasts a lifetime. It doesn't perish. But here in verse 18, it's described as perishable. But, of course, gold is only useful for this 70 or 80 years. Then it has no value to you once you die. And the contrast here is between gold and the blood of Jesus. I looked up the website for the Red Cross Blood Bank. They only keep donated blood refrigerated for 42 days. And then it goes off. It's perishable. But the blood of Jesus here is described as imperishable. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you were redeemed by his blood. His blood was shed for your forgiveness and it endures as the basis for your relationship with God for eternity. It's precious. It dominates your identity and your behaviour. If that's the case, you won't spend your life on stuff that doesn't last, like gold or silver or a career, or sex, or the esteem of other people around you, or trying to fit in and be like everyone else. You belong to God and his family, and you'll identify with the one who paid a high price for you. The fourth family tray comes up from verse 22 on. Love one another deeply. Look at verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. You can't be loved by God and say you love God and stand at a distance from his family, your siblings. Love deeply. The idea is to love at full stretch. It's the athlete striving for the finish line or the student knuckling down in the days leading up to exams. It means rejecting 
certain unloving behaviours. You see examples of that when you get to chapter 2 and verse 1, you know, getting rid of malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. You know, we don't say one thing to someone's face and another behind their back. We don't manipulate people for our own gain. That belongs to an old way of life. And positively, this theme of love, it runs through this whole letter. If you went to chapter 2, verse 17, you see we're called upon there to love the family of believers. We're in chapter 3, verse 8, to love one another. Chapter 4, verse 8, to love each other deeply. Or chapter 5, verse 14, to greet one another with the kiss of love. One of the people that I work with, he grew up as a pastor's kid. He says he can never, ever remember either of his parents speaking negatively about a member of the churches that they served in. Now, I'm sure there were challenges. In fact, I know there were. But isn't that a wonderful thing for him to be able to save his parents? This COVID lockdown, it's, it's been a challenging time. Online church has been really helpful and we've been so well served by the people who've laboured to make it happen. I mean, most weeks when I've been here recording a sermon and Michael and Indy and Maverick, they've been here working quietly behind the scenes. But of course, the, the one thing we've missed during this time, well, it's been each other. Uh, I've missed being with you. But you know, in some ways, it's actually made it much easier. I mean, it's not hard to get along from a distance, is it? And as we start meeting again, we will be stretched as we adjust back to face-to-face contact. But this is family. We don't get to choose our church family. God does. But in the same way that our Father has loved our brothers and sisters in Christ around us, we're to love them as well at full stretch. And then we come to the fifth family tray. It's in chapter 2, verse 2. They are instructed like newborn babies to crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, Peter has spoken of the imperishable word of God that gives people new birth into God's family. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah in verse 24. All people are like grass. All their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, it endures forever. God's word stands and it has ongoing impact. When we come back here to chapter 2, verse 2 of Peter, the translation is spiritual milk. The word that's translated here as spiritual is Logicon, and it's probably linked to the Greek word logos or word. So I think actually a better way of rendering this is to crave the milk of the word of God or to crave the milky word. You see, just like babies, they can't get enough of their mother's milk. A characteristic of a child of God is one who loves his word and is sustained by it for life and for eternity. So can I ask you, what's your diet like? You can't get enough of the Bible? Uh, Do you look forward to the opportunity to, to wrestle with the Bible together in your small groups? 
do you have an established pattern of regular personal Bible reading? As you suck on the word of God, it will do its enduring work in your life. It's not so you have strong theological grids, but so that you grow in your love for God. You become like him and you let him shape your heart and your priorities. That he might powerfully fill you with deep love for your church family and for others around you. Friends, do you, do you ever feel like you're shortchanged by God? Like in some way you've missed out by comparison with those around you? It can be hard to feel like you're privileged when no one around you sees it that way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, we read there, You have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, if you're a believer, you are a precious, loved, expensively purchased member of his family. You've been redeemed into his family and you've been stamped with his character. It's said that Queen Victoria, who became Queen of England in 1837, when she was 18 years old, she reigned for 63 years. Apparently it wasn't until she was 10 years old that she realised that she was next in line to the throne. She worked it out one day while she was reading a history book. She noticed her name next in line to the throne and she asked her tutor if this was the case and he confirmed it. And apparently she said, then I will be good. She realised that her identity as a royal had to have impact on her life. Friends, we have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, those around us, they they may not get it. They might view us as being a bit weird. But we are supremely blessed to know the Lord and to be given a window into his marvellous character. And so, of course, we'll have a deep desire to know him better and to imitate him and to live as children in his family. Let me pray we'll do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the wonderful promises of being in your family and the way in which you shape us in character to serve you for all eternity. And Father, we do pray that we'll be people who get what it means to be your children, to be redeemed at high price, to be holy, to love one another, uh, to suck on your word uh, deeply to keep working out what it means to live as your people as we relate to one another and as we serve you in this world. Help us to keep pressing on in the knowledge of the privilege we have as your children. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.